all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is the program where you can call in with any type of health care question that you might have. It might be about yourself or maybe somebody in your family or even a friend. And those kinds of questions can be wide open. That's right. Anything that has to do with your health, we do try to constrain it to those. But you can ask about a symptom that you've had, maybe a new medication, some questions about how it works or side effects. Maybe it's a, uh, a medical condition that you've been diagnosed with and just don't quite understand what that means or what the roadmap uh, is for that. If you're not able to call right now, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday and a little muggy out there. Um, I was uh, worked out early and then uh, it was humid when I woke up, and it continued to be humid when I came to work. So uh, it's uh, pretty pretty slick out there. Be careful if you're walking around in those areas that might uh, have a little bit more moisture on it. And I think we're going to get some uh, potentially uh, stormy weather later on in, with most of the state. So stay safe out there as you uh, enjoy this a little bit uh, warmer temperatures. So uh, how do you prepare yourself for going to the physician? We've talked about this a lot on, uh, on Southern Remedy and got a lot of questions for that. There are certain uh, things that you can do when you go to your physician, whether that is a new physician that you're seeing, maybe it's a subspecialist or maybe it's uh, your primary care provider for the first time, or maybe it's a repeat uh, appointment. Contrary to popular belief, we physicians don't have photographic memories, and sometimes we forget things. We are aided. Uh, now, almost everybody has an electronic medical record that helps us do that, and sometimes those are helpful to be shared amongst physicians that you see. It's a great resource. I am very thankful for that because I can see the notes of other physicians sometimes the same day that they see them, uh, if I'm seeing them on the same uh, the same day as, as they're seen by others. But even with that, there are some things that you can do as a patient to ensure that your physician has all the information that they need. If you have had any changes since you saw this physician, or if it's something new that you're going to them with, it's always a good idea to write things down. When we're under stressful situations, and that goes for anybody, I have a lot of patients who are uh, physicians, and they're not immune to this either. 
a lot of times you can forget some of the symptoms that you have and some of the details about that. So writing those down, you can either look down for that and sort of read off what's going on, particularly if it's a complex presentation of something. That's very important uh, to sort of arm yourself for that. And uh, just think about all the things with symptoms that were surrounding those, because that's probably what your physician is going to ask. Medications that you're taking, very important. And even if you have been on medications for a long time and your physician knows about that, that's probably a good idea to, uh, to at least write those down, including herbal uh, herbal medications that you're taking over-the-counter or over-the-counter medications, things like Aleve, Tylenol, those can be very important and in different situations can interact with what you're taking. So a couple of points there. We may pick back up uh, with that later in the hour with that same topic, but we do have uh, our first caller on the phone. Let's go to Helen from Columbus. Good morning, Helen. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Yes, I, I've been trying to find a diagnosis they said cervical dystonia. Cervical dystonia. Yes. Yeah. So, did you get that from um, from a particular person that you're going to, or did you have some some symptoms related to that? Tell me what sort of led you up to that diagnosis. I, I had some. I have a, this. The thing is that on my right side of my neck, uh-huh. that that I, that that nerve or whatever it is, it just stands out sticks out real bad and it hurts and I can't turn my head hardly especially towards the right Right. I turn my head it's very very painful and we went to a neurologist and that's what he said and they told me I won't have it forever and I don't want it forever yeah (laughs) right yeah there's so that's basically you sort of described how it presents um I always love when patients they call in where people call in and they're like okay these are this is how it presented because that's really a good story. That's pretty common for this type of uh, condition. And basically what happens, you know, there's all these nerves that come out of our spinal column and to the rest of our body, but that's sort of the main conduit for them. And um, they pass through other structures. They pass nearby other structures. There's a lot of muscles in the neck and the head. Our heads are fairly, you know, they weigh a good bit, and part of the body's job is to keep your head upright. And for whatever reason, sometimes it can be like overuse of those neck muscles. They can sort of pinch a nerve, and it can be, particularly if you're turning your head or twisting your head to one side, it can be very uh, painful because it's basically, it's, uh, it's pressing on that nerve. And sometimes you can even have muscle spasms that go along with that. There are several different ways that you can treat that and you don't have to jump to surgery or anything, but sometimes they resolve in and of themselves. But if it's been going on long enough for you to see your neurologist, it sounds like this is probably something that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Now there, there are medications that sometimes can be helpful. If it's been going on a year, I would bet you've probably taken some of these. Uh, For most people, a mild muscle relaxer I have found works well, something like methocarbamol. Another name for that is Robaxin. Flexoril is another one. Um, There's a couple of more out there, but have to be a little bit careful with with the sedation side effects of those and interaction with other medications. But that can help loosen up the muscle a little bit. Physical therapy I have found works. Let me tell you this. Go ahead. Uh They gave me a muscle relaxer, but I have... uh, um, reflux 
And it relaxes um, that muscle so that my stomach yep. stay upset all the time. Yeah, you're right. That is one of the, the sometimes rare complications of that with some people. So some people can't do that. Um, physical therapy, I have found, works really well for some people. So doing a course of that for this can help release. It's called a muscle release uh, where it sort of relaxes that tension in the muscles that are pressing on the nerve. It's not a quick fix, like you get immediate relief. It's something that, you know, over a four- to six-week period, you sort of have to work with them on that. But that's another one. There are some more invasive ways that either neurologists or pain clinics can help alleviate that. Botox, you know, everybody thinks about Botox as the uh, thing to do if you have wrinkles. But actually, in severe cases where you have a muscle that's just super, super tight and won't relax, that uh, injecting that into the muscle might help loosen that up a little bit, particularly if it's causing you some pain. And then, of course, surgery is sort of a last, you know, a last uh, option for a lot of patients. But uh, typically, most of them can be treated the other ways uh, that we mentioned if they don't have a, a contraindication. But if you haven't had physical therapy, that would be my next place to go to. I've had physical therapy, physical therapy, physical therapy, and physical therapy. Uh-huh. Uh, the TENS machine, the one that they do with the TENS machine, that yeah. helps mm-hmm. more than the other one. That one really yeah. helps some. But then it doesn't. it's not lasting, and then the only other thing they tell me is Botox. Yeah. Yeah, so I, it sounds like you're at that point. A ten, I didn't mention TENS. That's T-E-N-S. I know you know what it what it is, Helen, but for our other listeners out there, so that's a mild, it sounds like it's torture, but it's not actually. So it's a mild electrical stimulation of the muscle that helps to relax it. So it gives it some signals that it's normally not getting to help it sort of relax. But I think by what you said, you know, that's the usual thing. And Botox injections may be the next step to try to get you a um, to get you some relief there. It is so. It is true that it is not going to um, go away on its own. Uh, the treatment if it's, it's going to be there. Yeah, if it's been there a year, it's probably unlikely that it's going to resolve. Um, and again, it's not like you can relieve those muscles. It's sort of like when you get a stitch in your side and you can't really relax that because you can't stop breathing. Well, you can't, you know, your neck has to hold up and your shoulders have to hold up your head and you can't just take, you know, your head off and let them relax. So that is a constant thing that they're doing. So, and that's the goal is to get you back to, you know, doing all the things that you need to be doing with minimal pain or hopefully no pain. But yeah, I would I would say that it's pro- if it's a year, it's less likely, pretty low chance of it going away anytime soon. Okay, okay. But I was just, gonna go to a chiropractor. But, well, that's uh, not a bad idea either. I've had a lot of people that do uh, get some benefit from that. So ask around um, about people's, you know, which which chiropractors they've gone to, and if they've had a good uh, experience with that. And uh, that's not a bad thing to uh, to to explore prior to doing something like the Botox. Okay, well, I I I really thank you for the explanation because I didn't get that kind of explanation with it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Said, you know, that, get Botox that's, and that's right. That's what we're here for. 
So, all right, Helen, thank you for calling, and good luck to you. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might be concerned about or have questions about. Uh, David, we lost him. Sometimes we understand people have to uh, run away there, but we do have uh, Jack from Collierville, uh, Tennessee, that's on the line. Good morning, Jack. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Hey, I had... Uh a routine EKG done, and it came up that they said it was different than my last one. So what happened was I had, I was sleeping at night on Sunday night, and about 4 o'clock in the morning I got a, like an ache in my rib cage, about three ribs beneath my heart. And so I told them that, and they said, well, you might have a problem with your heart. So they did this EKG, and then they said, well, it could be angina. And we want you to get a chest x-ray and then an echocardiogram or something like that. So my question is, shouldn't I have additional symptoms or something? You know, my rib is still sore. I mean, I can touch it there between the ribs. It feels like the cartilage is still sore. What, What symptoms would I be experiencing if I did have angina? Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, that is one um, you know condition that a lot of people have. So, angina or angina, is, as, as some other people may pronounce it. So basically, that is the the blood flow to the heart is decreased from uh, you know from a narrowing of the blood vessels that are there. Typically, it presents with chest pressure or pain, and people classically will say it feels like an elephant sitting on my chest. And that pain may also be sensed up into the neck, particularly the left side of the neck and down the left arm. You can also have some shortness of breath with that. Uh, You can have weakness where you feel just like you're fatigued or tired. Um, Those are all symptoms that are pretty classic with angina. However, everybody's wired a little bit differently in the way that their nervous system senses pain in the heart. And uh, particularly, there are some, you know, like women are an, another uh, group that typically they may not have the same type of pain. So angina t- sometimes can sort of masquerade as other things like reflux, uh, for instance. So it might, um, it might present more like heartburn or it might be a vague sensation. I had one older uh, male patient that presented with some just the neck symptoms and no chest symptoms. So it can be a little tricky, but typically, you know, and I'm sure they probably asked this before, uh, what you're saying, particularly if you can reproduce the pain by touching your rib and it's hurting, that's less likely to be your heart. That's more likely to be some, you know, some problems right around the muscles in between the ribs, the intercostal muscles or the ribs themselves. Sometimes you can have costochondritis. But because the heart's very important, we want to make sure we rule out any kind of, you know, problem with it. So an EKG is the first step for most people for that. And basically you're looking at the electrical activity of the heart to see if there are some abnormalities there. And it turns out if you have had damage to your heart, uh, significant damage at least, then that can show on an EKG. But a normal EKG doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have heart disease, that you don't have narrowing of the blood vessels. So it can only show us the electrical activity of that. If there's enough concern that this might be angina, 
um, by what you've, you know, the, all the situations that were going on around it and the type of pain that you've had and any kind of, you know, things that may come up on an EKG, then they might go to those other tests and that you mentioned, and, and there are some more. A treadmill where you actually do the EKG while you're on a treadmill, you're basically stressing the heart, and you can see decreases, uh, electrical changes based on the decrease in blood flow is one way to do it, If particularly if somebody's mobile enough to do that. But there's many other tests. There's uh, my view tests. There's nuclear tests on the heart where they actually inject some dye that can actually they can show the blood flow in the heart. Um, there are uh, cardiac MRIs that can be done now. There's stress echoes. So there's a lot of different modalities, and there's reasons for doing all of that. A cardiologist will sometimes pick those based on the best test for that individual person based on how they present. Um, but that's probably the best test. Oddly enough, a chest X-ray, we used to do tons of those. They don't really have much of a value anymore as it relates to angina. A lot of people will still get them, but you can't really see. You can see the outline of the heart, but you really can't see. You certainly can't see blood flow that way. You can't see, uh, you know, if the heart is is big, you could certainly, that might uh, prompt you to do other tests like an echo. But uh, besides angina, they sometimes we do tests and we, we have results that pop up that we didn't expect. So that may be the case here, too, that they may have seen something on your EKG that was a little concerning or suspicious, and then they want you to go one step further with that. But uh, And it might be an arrhythmia, but by what you've told me, um, it sounds like at least the rib discomfort is more likely to be localized to the chest wall and not the heart itself. But I certainly wouldn't blow off anything that they're seeing. I can't see the EKG or what they were concerned about there. And it's certainly worthwhile to make sure that you check everything off that it's not your heart. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you, Jack. We appreciate you calling, and uh, good luck to you there. Then we got David back on the line from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Uh, thank you for calling, taking my call. Mine sure. is uh, mine's more of a general uh, knowledge, information question and whatnot. I'm 67. I haven't been to a doctor in 20 years. Uh, I worked 26 years at a chemical plant. I got an elevated risk of uh, asbestos, uh, nasal and lung cancer, and uh, uh, working around uh, known carcinogenic chemicals, methyl chloride, benzyl chloride, formaldehyde, um, caustic soda, I mean, you name it. Anyway, I, I'm, uh, I, I went with the Medicare Advantage plan, and they have no ge- uh, geriatric doctors. And for some God, maybe I have unreal expectations, but uh, how come there's no geriatric doctors around for the senior citizens? Uh, Yeah. uh, And if you can point me how to find a geriatric doctor. Yeah, there's there you're right. There's not enough geriatric doctors for all the geriatric age people out there. That's not a, a a total necessity that you see a geriatrician. However, you know, we need to know sort of what goes into geriatrics training. So so basically a a, a physician after medical school would either go into internal medicine or family medicine and then do a geriatrics fellowship after that. So both internal medicine and family medicine are three year uh three years of training and 
certainly anybody 67 years of age or older even, uh, they're perfectly fine to take care of them. What the geriatrics extra training, extra years of training allows them to do is sort of specialize within that age range for any kind of specific issues that are there. So, and of course, Medicare, you know, and other, um, other insurances, sometimes that'll be their preference, but it doesn't have to be that person. And as far as why don't we have more geriatricians? Well, it's sort of a supply and demand type thing, and we can't force anybody to go into any specialty. And if there's more interest in it, uh, we certainly, there's been programs over the last 10, 15 years that have encouraged people to go into geriatrics, but it's still up to them to do that as a career choice. Um, you know, if you have to, like, if there are external factors for some people, if you look at what physicians make as geriatricians, they tend to not make as much as uh, other specialties, so that can can play into it too. But um, that's that's sort of the reasons why a geriatrician might have a little bit more knowledge. But honestly, from what you told me, you know, an internal medicine doctor or a family, even a family medicine doctor could uh, could probably you know get you at least on the right track. There. Well, me, uh, well, go I, ahead. I, excuse me. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, I have a family history of. Uh, uh, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and Alzheimer's. Uh, can you uh, maybe give me a pointer about five, a time to pick a, a halfway decent primary care physician? Because I, I, I take zero medications. I've been blessed with uh, uh, good health, I guess, knock on wood so far. But it's time for me to go get a, a checkup and, you know, whatnot. Uh, yeah. Like that. I ain't, yeah. I ain't, I ain't stopped in, in 20 years. Yeah. I, you so know, I, I think... think... The only thing I've had done is I went broke down and got a COVID shot and two boosters. That's the yeah. only thing I've had done. So, yeah, I would think, again, any any internal medicine or, or family medicine trained individual would have the skill set to, you know, sort of take care of all of that. And then to know if you need to see somebody else, there's a lot of those, you know, that they would just sort of screen for that. But I would choose somebody that, A, is with, you know, that your insurance is going to pay for. B, that is close enough to you that you can go to them regularly if you need to. You may not. You may be able to see them once a year and everything's fine. But at 67, you know, our bodies don't live forever and they start to break down. And we have those genetics, uh, like you just mentioned, you know, family history of different things. And sometimes those things can pop up. It's very important to diagnose those earlier rather than later because you can do something about a lot of those. So um, I would just uh, I would pick one of those people and I'll you know I'm a big proponent of word of mouth if other people have gone to see them uh, check them out health grades do help sometimes there's medical health grades that you can find online to sort of see physicians and how they stack up but honestly some of those are better than other things I think somebody who is maintaining their certification within their specialty is important because they're keeping up with some of the changes in medicine as they come up um, so that's, that's another thing to ask. Um, and, but really I, I would, the biggest thing probably is talking to some people who have gone to that physician to see, or, or to ask them if you have some good friends about the same age and maybe have one or two health problems, say, Hey, who do you go to for your doctor? Uh, who would you recommend? And, uh, get you about five to 10 people, ask them that question, see what they say. Okay, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, David. 
This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering questions that you have about your health care. had a previous caller, David, ask about how do you find a geriatrician if uh, you want to go see one. And I didn't have it right up in front of me, but I did pull it up. The If you'll search online, anybody who, who's curious or wants to see where the geriatricians are near you, you can pull them up by the American Geriatric Society. So if you search for that on their website, they do list uh, geriatricians that are close to you. So you can search that website totally free. But that is the Professional Society for Geriatricians. Again, that's the American Geriatrics Healthcare uh, Professionals or AmericanGeriatrics.org is the uh, website for that. So someone else you can go to to look for uh, geriatricians. All right, we've got Bob from South Haven. Good morning, Bob. Hello. Uh, I'm a 75-year-old, and uh, I've been on Plavix for 15 years, I guess. And uh, they've changed my medicine to X-A-R-E-L-T-O. I guess that's a new medicine that they say is a lot better, and I don't really understand. They've been talking about Plavix was so good for so many years and now this is this is better the only difference is this is about eight thousand dollars a year where <laughs> Plavix right. is yeah. you know, a hundred dollars a year. Yeah. And uh, I guess you can't put a price on uh your health, but you know, I guess you have to draw a limit, you have to draw a line somewhere. <laughs> right. So limit. maybe you could uh, tell me uh why it's so much better or whatever yeah. What's your comment on it? Yeah. Uh, let me ask you one question before I do that, Bob. So do you know why they initially put you on the Plavix? Yeah, I had a heart attack. Okay. Uh, about 16, 17 years ago. And at that time, I guess that was the proper thing to do. I hadn't had any problems as far as, you know, this is, uh, you know, for prevention of strokes is what they're, Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because that, that's helpful in knowing, uh, you know, which one of these that you need to be on. So Plavix is, uh, it's a little bit like aspirin, but it's a lot more potent if you want to think of it that way. So it it works by preventing blood clots in blood vessels, inside blood vessels. And that can be blood clots in your legs. It can be uh, you know, uh, preventing blood clots in the arteries supplying your heart or in your head for, you know, like stroke. So there's, there's a number of conditions where that is very helpful. It's it's one of the medications that are prescribed sometimes after you have things like a heart attack and then have a stent placed in your heart to keep those arteries open. Or if you've had a stroke or a heart attack, sometimes they'll want you to be on that for at least 6 to 12 months. Um, and then... Um, you know different uh uh different conditions that that are cause you to be hypercoagulable in other words to form blood clots Xarelto, on the other hand, instead of inhibiting platelets from sticking together, it works on the body's system called the coagulation pathway, and these are a number of clotting factors that when you have something that needs to be clotted. Is sort of like it. it uh, it's almost one of those things like we used to do, like a mouse trap, like a, a mouse trap that has multiple things on it. You know, where a ball hits one thing and then it rolls down and then it hits something else. The coagulation pathway can be looked at that way. Like something triggers it, and then one factor 
acts on another factor, which acts on another factor. So it's a coagulation pathway. And Xarelto inhibits uh, one of those clotting factors. And uh, or, or to be specific, it's an enzyme against, uh, well, factor 10A is, is the one it does. Now, it can be useful for different things like Patients that have chronic blood clots in their legs, it's very useful in in that case. It's much more, it's just as useful as, say, Coumadin or Warfarin, except it doesn't sort of, Coumadin and Warfarin, warfarin, basically you have to sort of check levels on patients and you have to adjust the dosage. Xarelta is very good at, at having a low risk of bleeding and also to be maintained at that level for longer periods of time. So it it's probably at this point is that there, and, and it's been looked at in multiple studies for multiple conditions, uh, some of which for stroke prevention, for heart heart uh, heart attack prevention, uh, or blood clot prevention. So probably your physician is looking at some of the newer data that looks at that. Now you may want to go back. I mean, if it is a cost, and I have these conversations with my patients all the time, I will. Um, say, you know, let's look at this. It's the best agent for this. But if it's going to be $1,000 a month, I mean, we had to be practical about that. And it may be that Plavix would still give you some protection that, you know, you have to sort of, what are the numbers on that? If it's uh, if it's going to reduce your risk of a stroke by 56%, I'm just throwing numbers out there, 56%, but Xarelto is going to be 67%. It may not be that much more of a risk reduction to, you know, warrant paying that extra amount of money, but it may be a discussion you want to have with your doctor to say, hey, are there alternatives here that are going to approximate what Xarelto is going to do? Is it going to be about the same and not break the bank? Because it, it does work really well. It's a good medication. I've got some patients on Xarelto and Plavix, um, but... Um, but it, it's, it needs to be matched up with the medical conditions and risk that you have. And then if you can't do it because of, you know, if, but the financial aspect of it, then uh, there may be some alternatives. And it may be that you just need to do a prior authorization form. Sometimes we have to do that. We love, physicians love filling these forms out, by the way. And uh, sometimes it, it requires a phone call with somebody in your insurance or the, the Part D plan uh, to say, okay, this is what they need, this is why they need it, and they may approve it like that. Okay. Uh, I had one other comment. They gave me some samples to take, and I've been taking these. And, uh, so I would I would take one in the morning. Uh-huh. And uh, then I would have blood in my urine uh, for about 10 hours. And then... And then it would clear up. And then the next morning, I'd take another one, same thing. So my question on this is, should a person be taking uh, maybe a lower strength twice a day? Because it seems like maybe the effectiveness is only lasting for 10 hours, and then it just maybe it's, maybe it's not being as effective. And then you take it the next morning. It's real strong, and then it went leading away. So I just wondered if that was something maybe a person should be taking two, maybe lower strength or whatever, uh, instead of taking just one a day. Yeah, dose-wise, they may have to 
to cut back on that. Usually after taking it, um, you can take it twice a day, um, but they may need to just cut back on the dose of it. But um, it lasts long enough uh, that it, it probably, you know, from the, the effect of it, in other words, the, the positive effect of it lasts long enough that taking it twice a day is not a necessary thing in most, most instances. But you do need to tell your physician about that. I mean, this may be another reason why Xarelto may not be good for you is because, again, it's a different pathway of thinning your blood than Plavix was. And they may want to say, well, I don't know. I mean, we need to, you know, if you're having blood in your urine like that, we may need to go back to Plavix. Okay. Okay. Right, that kind of answers my question. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. We appreciate your call. We're going to go to Lee from Gulfport. Good morning, Lee. Good morning. Thanks for calling. What's your question this morning? I, I, I thank you for just being being available, honestly. Uh, I am uh, 70 years old. Even though the doctor says my body might think I'm like 65. Oh, anyway. that's a good compliment. That's good. <laughs> it, it really was my cardiologist. I never had one before. But uh, a little while ago, well, actually March, I had a stroke in the pool, 12 foot of water. Mm. And half of my body decided not to cooperate, Doc. Oh, no. Anyway, the person in the pool next to me was in the Swedish Olympics. She grabbed me, pulled me up. Three minutes AMR, three minutes later, I was at the hospital. They said I had a TIA, and it was an anomaly, which means star treks to me. I don't know. Anomaly? I don't even know what that is. So sometimes, yeah, we use we're uh, us doctors are are sometimes guilty of speaking the doctor language and we don't interpret it to for people. <laughs> so uh, that's probably referring to an anomaly of a vessel inside your head that maybe takes a little bit of a turn or is a little bit narrowed and that you were born with and it's been there all the time. Um, wow. anomalies, anomalies can be blood vessels that are maybe attached to the wrong place or they're a little bit bigger or smaller. So there's all kinds of, you know, just like we all look different when we look at us on the outside, uh, you learn in medical school, there's commonalities mostly, but there's, you know, people as common that we learned in gross anatomy that when you get down to looking at differences, there's a whole lot of differences that you can find. So that's probably what they're referring to as an anomaly is something that's not quite in most of the population uh, that may have put you at risk for that. So that's that's probably the, what they were saying. But I would, I would call them and say, hey, you said an anomaly. What do you actually mean by that? Um, and maybe they can explain it a little bit better, but that's probably what they were referring to. Well, he called me yesterday. I went to him yesterday uh-huh. and said the results of the cardiology, whatever the thing is that went in inside me, he said, you're, you're, you got 20% blockage. Uh-huh. He said, that, that's pretty great for a 70-year-old black guy. I don't know what the black guy has to do with it, but I'm just thankful. I'm <laughs> the little, yeah. Inside the little picture they showed us in whatever the uh, x-ray I've had, I could see inside my heart. And yeah. it, was, uh, like, it looked like a little fella in there, like just working away. I told him, you're doing a great job. Well, 20... Twenty percent may sound like a lot to a lot of people, but usually you don't run into problems until it gets to eighty or ninety percent blocked. So they're right. I mean, age-wise, um, I think you're doing good. 
It gave me some medicine. Thank you. It gave me some medicine. I'm, I still swim. It's like therapy, therapy to my soul because I have a bad back and knee. So that kind of helps me a lot. Uh, try to do two hours or two miles every other day or whatever. Oh, that's but great. My question over the top is that he, when he was telling me about my heart, he says up at the top there's a really tiny flow of blood in the opposite direction. He says, and only like 300 people in the whole United States. Like he said, it's not a thing. He says, but there's a thin, that's what I heard, a thin uh, vein, I don't know, over the top going in the opposite direction. He said, but it's not the thing to be concerned of. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what he's talking It may be a... Uh, it may be a vessel that, well, it's just hard. I'd be sort of guessing at it at this point. But, yeah, there there are either blood vessels that come back into the heart, that carry blood blood back to the heart, or carry blood away from the heart. And sometimes they're not uh-huh. in the right position. Um, and then, but, you know, if you look hard enough on anybody, you're going to find something that's not quite in the normal textbook example of things. Anybody. Uh, we all have, you know, all kinds of little bitty things that pop up from time to time. But uh, it sounds like overall, though, you're doing great. And I, you know, I applaud you for that. That's a lot. That's not an inconsequential amount of swimming either. That's really good. Bless your heart. Thank you. You encouraged me, and you, you got things seeing just a little bit clearer. Really okay. All right. Thank you for calling. We do appreciate you. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Had some great questions today already, and we got a couple of more people who've been hanging on the line. We do appreciate your patience. Let's go to Frankie from Alabama. Good morning, Frankie. Hello. Okay. Uh, my husband is 76, and he's been diagnosed with fatty liver disease. And okay. I'd like to know what is it, what causes it, and what can he do about it? And how is it different from cirrhosis? Sure. Yeah, and you, did you say 86? 76. 76, okay. Didn't want to add any years there, okay. So <laughs> fa- fatty liver disease is a very common thing to find, and it can be totally asymptomatic, no symptoms whatsoever. It's usually found on a CT scan looking for something else or an ultrasound looking for something else in the abdomen. And uh, or it might be found when you get labs drawn, uh, blood work. They may notice that your liver enzymes are a little bit high, and then they would do the either the ultrasound or the CT scan. So it, it again, it's extremely common. Usually, it's in individuals who are either overweight or obese. Um, it can be associated with uh, type two diabetes particularly if you've had that for a long period of time, but you don't have to. But there are individuals that have this sort of genetically. And what it is is it's a a deposition. The fat is laid down in the liver a little bit more than what you would normally see. Most of the time that can be managed with diet and trying to eat healthy. Sometimes even if you don't have diabetes, they will put you on a diabetes medication called metformin. There's a couple of other treatments that they're looking at right now for this. Now, if you read in the literature, either online or otherwise, you'll see that it can lead to cirrhosis over time, but not in everyone. 
So again, it can be something that you can have for 10, 15 years even and not cause any problems whatsoever. But it's probably a good idea to not do anything that's going to affect your liver, uh, you know, any other insult to the liver if you've been diagnosed with fatty liver disease. A GI doctor, a gastroenterologist, is probably a good idea if you have this just to see them. They may want to do some some follow-up of this over time with an ultrasound or a CT scan, but um, that's sort of what fatty liver disease is, is it's an infiltrate of, of fat in the liver. And it has different names, too. Uh, NAFLD is another one, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, in other words, it's not caused by alcohol. Um, but it, you can live with that a long time, and it can be something that they can treat. Weight loss does tend to help. Sometimes medication helps. Okay. And uh, are there any other things you can do, like we've read the milk thistle and artichoke or something that you can take for that? Do you yeah, yeah, that's those? been... Yeah, so milk thistle's been out for a long time. It's sort of protective for liver health, and it's totally safe to take. I would tell your physician if you're taking that because it could interact with other things. Artichokes are another things I've looked at. Coffee intake actually has some pretty good. I know a lot of coffee drinkers are like like me are saying, yes, uh, uh, totally caffeinated coffee is good for the liver uh, for liver function. So there are some things, and again, your GI doctor is going to be the expert on that, but there are some things that you can take uh, that can help protect the liver. And liver is an amazing organ and can regenerate itself incredibly. Uh, so if you just give it a little bit of help and don't insult it in any ways, it can it can do a lot, even if you're 76. Okay. Well, do I have time for another question? Sure, really quick, yep. Okay. Um, he has been taking blood pressure medicine for many years, and recently his primary care doctor told him he has severe coronary artery disease. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to eat healthy. He quit smoking 11 years ago. He gets moderate exercise. Uh, what else can we do? And uh, he does have an appointment with a cardiologist. Yeah, they may... They probably are going to want to do something a little bit. They may want to do something a little bit differently to the types of blood pressure medication. Sometimes, depending on how his heart looks to the cardiologist, they may suggest a different type. It sounds to me like you're doing all the things you know that you can do. Uh, they may also suggest a cholesterol medication, even if his cholesterol is normal, because it can help prevent a heart attack or a stroke, particularly if you're older. Um, so, uh, that may be something that they suggest too, but it sounds like you're doing everything from eating right to exercising. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. We've got about a minute and a half left. Let's go to Denise from Tupelo. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I was diagnosed, um, after, um, them think, uh, the doctors thinking I had migraines initially, with TMJ early last year, uh-huh. and I just completed my second round of physical therapy. In addition to that, you know, giving pain meds and uh, flexoria muscle relaxant. And I just wanted to know, um, my first question is, I just want to know, um, is there something else that I can talk to my doctor about, about this TMJ, MJ, since it doesn't seem like the meds, the muscle relaxant and the physical therapy has worked it effectively. And secondly, my regular physician um, 
also um, um, is sending me to um, um, <clears throat> a surgeon to see about uh, possibly getting a breast reduction. I'm in a triple D. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, so my second question, is there a correlation because of my posture, because of my breast size to that um, NTMJ? And I'll listen off the air. Thank yeah, you. It, sure. Thank you. I, and I'll try to do this quick. Um, it sounds like you're plugged in with the right people. So usually an oral surgeon or an endodontist uh, is a good uh, resource to use for that for TMJ problems. Uh, it could be from postural changes. I know a lot of people say, well, it could be the, the culprit of that. Uh, once it goes on for a long period of time, though, you can have chronic changes to the jaw itself at that joint. Um, again, we mentioned Botox. Somebody who's very you know, accustomed to doing that might be another modality, but I would get a second opinion, too, on that just because it can be so devastating to a lot of people. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank everybody for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell. The podcast producer is Jermaine Flood and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.